Welcome to part two of the governance episodes. Hey, speaking of, Morgan has an announcement to make. What topical thing do you have to say, Morgan? So, funnily enough, as we were in production of these two episodes on governance, I've been going through an interview process for a position that I actually am starting next Monday, which is the executive director of the World History Association. What? Exactly. So um, aside from my actual degree field in art history, this position will be using all of the digital humanities, community management, and governance experience that I've developed interacting with the FOSS community. So I wanted to say thank you to especially the FOSS and Crafts community for being part of that journey. And congrats again, Morgan. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to FOSS and Crafts. A podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host, Morgan. And my co-host, Christine. Well, we're continuing from part one of what? Our last episode was part one of a series about governance structures and organizations in free and open source software. If you have not listened to that, you might want to go back. We talked a lot about the general concerns and considerations you have to think about when setting up governance for your project or organization. And now we're going to talk about a (laughs) non-exhaustive list of actual kind of template-y structures. You might imagine that a project might be under that we're not considering this to be the full set. I'm sure that people can think of others. Oh, yeah, there's so many more. But we're going to give kind of a list of the types of FOSS nonprofit and some for-profit organizations that exist, and then a couple of examples for each of them. Mm -hmm. So the first one is none. So a project without an official org. Right. So again, this is where most projects start. You know, you've got somebody who has some sort of thing they've been working on themselves or They have some ambition to be able to create something and they create some repository somewhere and they just, you know, make it public and they start making contributions, right? Or an organization, like as in terms of a company or something like that, might have already made this thing, but it's just like, we're just going to donate this publicly and, you know, our developers are working on it in their spare time. Yeah. And just, you know, I think we kind of said a little bit in the last episode One of the things that's kind of different today about, you know, the way that this used to be is that there's a lot more kind of public infrastructure that can be used to start and use a project. So, like, this is very feasible, um, like, very easy and very feasible for most developers to kind of just hit the ground running with these days. Yeah. So the main reason that you might want to consider starting an org is, one, if you've gotten to a point in the scale of your project where having it as just a project is not useful, Or two, if you start having uh, legal considerations that you need to take into account and you need a official organization that can manage that. Yep. The next thing we're going to talk about are businesses that work with producing and maintaining and stewarding in one way or another some free and open source software development. Yeah. And I mean, there, there are some that just kind of glance on it. Like there are a lot of businesses that have some level of open source development, but Mm -hmm. it's not their main focus. 
Right. So GitLab, for example, would be, you know, a piece of software. GitLab, not as in terms of, you know, using it as a service, but the software itself Mm -hmm. that is used to run repositories on GitLab and stuff is a uh, mostly free and open source software system. They did at least at one point have some a non-free branch of things, but I don't remember if that's still active at the moment. But also, you know, there, there are a lot of companies that do this where, you know, they have some sort of open sourcey thing. The governance may be very different when you end up having a for-profit company. I think it's also worth saying that sometimes there are companies like historically Cygnus was a good example of this way back in the day, made a bunch of the open source tech that the free software tech, I should really say, for the GNU project, right? In its early days. And like they were not running all of that software themselves some of it they did produce and they were the origins of like sigwin Mm -hmm. but a lot of it was just contributions to other things so they weren't necessarily the steward but they were a kind of a member of that ecosystem some people might be surprised to hear but mastodon is actually such a structure it is um you know, got the CEO of Mastodon, Oijen Rochko, slash Gargron, who is the head of that. And, you know, they take a Patreon feed, which, you know, basically is where most of their money comes from, I think. And they also are projects like Android, which is the core of Android is mostly free and open source software, but kind of hard to use as it increasingly. And that is... It's open source software with an asterisk. It's infamously a throw code over the wall type situation, right? And yeah. and Red Hat used to also be a big contributor to lots of things and was, you know, a for-profit company. Um, decreasingly so today. And there's a lot... More that can be said about that that we will not talk about today. But that was a lot of what they did. The most common case is that a company, they have some sort of library that they need and they kind of release it as in terms of this is not our main product, but this is a thing that we are releasing that people can use, but it's not the primary place that we're making money. And for sometimes for for long enough, it will be the case that people are not too bothered by this. Um, sometimes this can lead to conflicts, though, when the, the company's priorities do not match what its user base or community has. Yeah, and then they ideologically shift focus. <laughs> yeah. So the next type of organization that we're going to talk about is umbrella organizations. And there's kind of like two categories to talk about under this. One is the umbrella organizations themselves. And then the other one is all of the projects and maybe also organizations that are fiscally sponsored by the Umbrella organization. Right. So the Free Software Foundation technically is the organizational steward of the GNU project. They have a lot less focuses on this than they used to, right? And they, in fact, at one point, they actually used to have paid developers internally, and they've kind of stopped doing that. Software Freedom Conservancy also does a lot of this. Um, they have branched into a lot of other things as well, you know, including copyleft compliance and, um, you know, outreachy and stuff like that. Um, but they still have quite a few projects that are underneath them. And we're going to talk a little bit more about them as an advocacy organization towards the end of the episode. Yep. And Commons Conservancy is what Eftroid uses. Is that right? It is, yeah. So that's an umbrella organization based out of the Netherlands. And the reason that we did that for Eftroid is because the majority of the contributors are in Europe. 
Well, we didn't actually define what an umbrella organization is. Do you want to define that? We should. So um, an umbrella organization is one larger kind of legal entity of an organization that does a lot of the organizational and sometimes governance work for a bunch of smaller projects or organizations so that they don't all have to become their own legal entity. Right. So your project has grown beyond the point where it's, you know, just like kind of a one-off or, you know, kind of like side thing of your company or something like that. And like you now need the point where you need a home for both the finances and also for the legal stuff that the organization might hold and also for um, some sort of governance structure. But creating out of that from scratch is, I can tell you, a lot of work. Yeah, it's a lot of work and going and like registering your new organization under a umbrella organization cuts out a lot of the bureaucratic stuff that like, to be honest, a lot of FOSS projects don't have a lot of people on them that are willing to volunteer their time to do the kind of brass tacks organizational work to set up an organization. Yep. So in the U.S., these are usually what are called 501c3 organizations. Like that's what Conservancy and the Free Software Foundation and stuff like that is. But that's a particular categorization created within the code of U.S. tax law. And it's a type of nonprofit in the U.S. Yeah. And that's not necessarily true internationally. For for example, Commons Conservancy is a, isn't a 501c3 because it's not in the U.S., right? It's in the Netherlands. Yeah. And... The Commons Conservancy is a type of organization called a stitching, which is a Dutch legal entity with limited liability, but no members or share capital that exists for a specific purpose. So it makes it possible to separate functions of ownership and control. So it's a different government provided in a different part of the world legal structure that permits some of this type of stuff. Yeah. Right. And you typically one of these things will have like they'll have a board. Mm -hmm. Uh, trustees for the meta organization but they actually might have a board for some of their membership projects right like a like a little sub board like that's a true with f-droid right yeah so uh commons conservancy has a board and then f-droid as an organization under commons conservancy has a board which means that we follow the governance structure of commons conservancy but we also have an additional governance structure that we created created for Mm f-droid there's kind of lighter versions of this in some ways so like one of the things with conservancy and stuff for freedom conservancy and commons conservancy is that they both like have like a a very strongly reviewed sign up process and stuff like that and they, they kind of have a very strongly curated set i think open collective is kind of interesting for having a larger membership base, it's a little bit easier to join. Mm-hmm. They currently are the financial and legal home of 583 groups as of this morning. Um, Sprightly was initially actually receiving its funding when we got the first funding that came into Sprightly was from Stamstung Sack Zero. And um, it went through Open Collective and uh, there, it was very helpful. And I, I actually don't know what whether or not things have shifted from that time period but this is also an organization that has a board and so on and so forth right yeah they have a board they are also a 501c3 and when you set up an organization on here you do have like they have some things that are in there that are like when you withdraw funds you have to do it in a way that's public like you actually have to so they provide some public accountability type things that are kind of baked in but the Open Collective is a little bit more hands-off of some of their structure than, let's say, a Conservancy 
what either one of the constituencies are. Yeah. Then we've also got, like, the Linux Foundation, which is a slightly different type of U.S. nonprofit. It's a 501c6. Right. So this is a trade organization. They basically take donations from a bunch of different industry groups. And the Linux Foundation has, like, a lot of funding, partly because of this, because it has a lot of corporate sponsors. But, like, the Linux kernel, unshockingly, is under there. But they also have a lot of other types of things that end up getting funded. I think Linux is the most successful thing that they've had underneath there. But it's right in the name. It's right in the name. And, and it's kind of interesting because I think, I don't actually know for sure, but my, my understanding is they tend to be more hands-off as in terms of what the organization wants to do when they're underneath there. I think SEL4 is even also underneath the Linux Foundation. Hilariously a different kernel entirely. But I, I don't know as much about it. I do know that the governance structure of being a 501c6, there's a lot of discussion you will hear about people who are very interested in the administrative processes of these is that the incentives tend to be different, right? Mm -hmm. They they are much more focused on what do the industry players need. But I've heard people like the main person behind SEL4 say, for us, you know, the, the main thing is that this is a way to be able to get up a membership structure that was fast. The Linux Foundation was useful for that type of thing. So I don't know. But I do think it's true that you tend to have like 501c6s, you're expected to have a lot more kind of corporate mm-hmm. collaboration, like corporate oversight of what's happening. Yeah, but it's still a nonprofit for public good. It's a, theoretically. It's a, it's a nonprofit with a different structure. It's more like a convergence point between different things. If you really want to hear more about this, Free is in Freedom, the podcast, has a lot more breakdown. They are very concerned about the differences between 501c3 and 501c6. Mm-hmm. You can hear a lot more about it over there. But yeah. yes, there's there's some differences. And the Linux Foundation also has actually two boards. It has a board of directors and then also a technical advisory board, which um, kind that's, of serve two different roles. And that's specifically for the Linux kernel project. So they, yeah. they'll have different... Um, governance structures for different sub-projects, I think. And, and actually, Linux is kind of interesting. I just want to have a small digression, which is that, you know, Linux, before there was, a, like, you know, the current legal institution of the Linux Foundation, Linux still had an interesting governance structure in that it had a mailing list that was, like, everything. It's where all the discussion would end up happening. And uh, Linux is famously a organization that had a, you know, benevolent dictator for life with Linus Torvalds who uh, has improved some of his communication over time, um, but also has been kind of notorious for being very harsh on mailing lists, but also has provided a lot of curational view as in terms of the way things should work. But Linux is not as much a Linus thing as people think in the sense that Linus has delegated a lot of control. And there's kind of a star topology where Linus is merging things at the center Linux is actually really using Git in the way that it is a distributed version control system where like there are different people who are in charge of different subsystems and they are kind of all feeding things into the bigger project, but there are different people who are in control of those different things. So there's the governance is actually centralized and spread out at the same time. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not quite as relevant to the particular legal home, but it is interesting when you're talking about governance to talk about here is an example of something that has that kind of topology of, of collaboration, basically. Yeah. So now we're going to move on to talking about dedicated organizations. So where you have one organization around one project or language or theme. 
And of course, Sprightly is one of these, right? Yeah. You know, at the Sprightly Institute. Um, Wait, say the whole name so that you say the theme. The Sprightly Networked Communities Institute. Obviously, we have a suite of projects, but they are focused around um, our specific theme, right? You know, network community enabling software. Yeah. But I'm not going to spend as much time talking about that. Let's pick another project. So we're going to talk a little bit more about the Python Software Foundation because it's a well-known central project. Right. So they have a core piece of technology, which is the C implementation of Python, also known mm-hmm. as C Python. Mm-hmm. And even though there are multiple implementations of Python, that version, it's a version that informs every version of Python that exists. And they're the steward to that particular piece of software. So there's also a wider ecosystem around it. Like, you know, there are a lot of people with um, using different libraries. They have the Python package index that has all the different libraries that are on there. So the Python Software Foundation is not in control of the entire Python ecosystem. They have a healthy community that's around it. But they do have this core thing that everybody kind of knows as the center of it, which is Python slash CPython. Yeah. And there's so many projects that use Python that kind of orbit around mm-hmm. the uh, PSF. So they also, by having this kind of central foundation, it also helps kind of foster a positive and healthy community because they have this set governance structure. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things about Python is that they, they've done a nice job of avoiding founder syndrome in the sense that, um, you know, Python had a BDFL with, you know, Guido von Wassum being kind of the lead of the project. And for a long time, Python was really just like, what does Guido think is good? And then, you know, they've kind of started expanding outward. They introduced this process called PEPs, uh, Python Enhancement Proposals, where they started to formalize getting new features into the language and so on and so forth. Um, And this happened, I don't know if the Python Software Foundation existed at the time, but it certainly was not as large as it is today. And that answers one of the questions that we said in the kind of general concerns, which is how do you introduce new features? Right, exactly. Python enhancement proposals. um, There are similar things that we see in a lot of projects now, like like XMPP has an enhancement proposal project. Um, Some people in the Fediverse use something called the FEPs, the Fediverse enhancement proposals. There are a bunch of different things that use these type of things. Rust has a similar process, I think. But I think Python is where like it came to be really kind of well known. And I don't think that Guido is actually, um, I don't know to what degree he's involved in the governance, but he's certainly not kind of labeled the BDFL type thing that he once was. But, you know, Guido's voice when Guido has something to say is obviously held very strongly. Mm-hmm. Most of these organizations that we're talking about also host some kind of conference around their theme, um, including some of the ones we've already talked about, but we want to specifically talk about PyCon. Yeah, so PyCon is huge. It's a conference that is actually like the second big false conference thing that I ever went to, but like, you know, it PyCon is very well known for being very large, very well run, and like very um, welcoming. The Python community in general tends to be much more welcoming than many other communities, but like PyCon itself is also does a really good job of creating a, a good place there. Um, Especially considering that Python is used so much in kind of like industry and commercial stuff. The it, fact that there's a conference that kind of is not specifically a FOSS conference, right? but is that inclusive? It crosses many domains at PyCon, but that's one of the things that the Python Software Foundation does, right? Is that they run this and it's a big part of their work. Mm -hmm. 
The PSF is also a 501c3 nonprofit in the U.S., and they also have a board. Yeah. So I don't actually know all the details of the PSF. I do believe that they have a lot of funding that are from like industry partners and stuff like that. I have been informed that um, a large portion, the Python package index, which is where a lot of people get the software, would be many millions of dollars probably of bandwidth to be able to get stuff. But they actually get donations of hosting credits from mm-hmm. some of the companies that use Python stuff, right? Yeah, so, which is a huge donation, even if it's not like directly monetary. Right, exactly. So that is just an, another example of the way that resources can end up being kind of held and managed by one of these re- institutions, even if those are resources are not specifically what we normally call currency. Yeah. This next one is an interesting case study. So we're going to be talking about like the Blender project, which is the, you know, mostly 3D, but now also 2D graphics and animation software Mm -hmm. but as far as entities go there is the blender foundation the blender institute and the blender studio right so the blender foundation i believe they handle mostly kind of like the meta kind of like intellectual you know like the trademark the the software mm-hmm. um code to the extent that like that's being done under blender's work and like the copyrights and like those types of things are being held by the blender foundation which is a stitching which is the same um kind of dutch nonprofit status that we talked about earlier with commons conservancy right and what's interesting is they have that and i think it it works with the other two things that we're going to be talking about, but it's not as ambitious. It has like its work is to do this core thing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, keep Blender, the core thing they, alive. They protect the flame. Right. But then there's this, like, you know, whereas Python, I think there's like, you know, some things that the Python Software Foundation does that are outside of, you know, just C Python, you know, like with PyCon and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's all happening within that organization. They have these two kind of auxiliary organizations that we're going to be talking about. That Blender has these two. Auxiliary. Blender does. Yeah, sorry. Blender does. That do a lot of the things that feed into what ends up happening with kind of the core stuff of the Blender Foundation. Yeah. So the Blender Institute is kind of like the company that keeps the lights on for the foundation and does kind of like the foundational like you know hosting and the actual like physical office space and stuff like that and i'm gonna be honest here that the differences between these things are a little bit unclear a little blurry a little blurry we don't we do not work for the blender it would be great to have on tunrisendal or francisco or like uh pablo or something like that if one of them wanted to speak uh, if you're listening and want to come on our podcast yeah so um but blender is blender is very interesting in that they do have these separate institutions so Let's kind of just talk about the Institute and Studio as handling kind of like what those two organizations do and acknowledge that there's some distinction between them that we're not going to be very hard on what the difference is. It's clear that the Blender Studio handles the open movie projects, but there's also like, as you said, the building that they've got all the people working out of that. That one's definitely the Blender Institute. Yeah, that one's the Institute. But then there's also the developers that are working there in their collaboration with the artists. They do some training stuff and everything like that. And like, these are a little bit more ambitious than just the software of Blender, mm-hmm. but they feed into it. So so let's, let's actually, I really want to talk about 
Is it okay for me to nerd out for a second? It is okay for you to nerd out. That's kind of the point of this podcast. Okay, all right. I'm going to nerd out for a second. So Blender is really interesting to me. Now, we've had a few... Well, we've had a couple of Blender people on the show, right? And one of the things that's really interesting to me is that, first of all, it was a commercial software that was brought free to be free software. And one of the first crowdfunding campaigns that ever happened on the internet, basically, Tun Rusendahl um, was like, hey, you know, okay, our company died in the dot-com crash. Hey, investors, wouldn't you like some money back? And, like, basically went to do a crowdfunding campaign where, you know, they gave the investors just enough money where they said, okay, we feel like we got something. And, you know, okay, you can make this thing open source. And yeah. so they did that. And Blender became this open source thing. And it spent a couple years getting kind of a community built around it where they were had, you know, regular meetings. People were committing stuff and everything. But it's when they did the first open movie project that I think things really took off, right? And that was Elephant's Dream, known as Project Orange at the time. We will link to a previous episode with the very director of that uh, show yeah. and the show notes. Um, what, what was really interesting about that and what remains interesting today is that Blender had the artists and developers working side by side during that project. And it's not as if these are the only artists using Blender, right? But they had specifically a movie that they were putting out and you know so the develop you know okay we need this feature say the artists and so the developers are working on that feature and that directly had this kind of synergy between i hate that word but synergy between um the the users and developers of that software directly Mm -hmm. in which a way that i i feel like we don't see enough in a lot of free software projects and also it's producing a free cultural output right yeah. like those open movie projects actually have the source code available so you can study modify adapt them the same way you can with software mm-hmm. and so what's interesting to me is that you have this organization you know blender is not just this in that like blender has a lot of organizations and companies that actually kind of flow in contributions in many ways from you know code to just you know people kind of using things and giving a lot of feedback and everything but the decision at the heart of it to have ambitious projects that are being done that produce a cultural work in conjunction with the piece of technology that enables that cultural work and setting up that direct feedback loop is one of the reasons i think that blender is and i'm going to be bold and i'm going to say it the best most powerful most interesting piece of graphics technology we currently have today and christine has opinions i have opinions we're gonna have to do a blender episode soon i will back that up there are reasons i believe that to be the truth but i want to also back up and say i don't know that much about what blender's governance model is i think that ton rusendahl still is the kind of bdfl according to their uh, website yes he's still the director yeah blender's uh, ton's still the director i mean they do have different people who are in charge of different parts of things but I think this is interesting because the reason why I'm hammering on this is that I think that it is interesting to see something where the open movie projects are still in the public interest, right? They're mm-hmm. still producing a free cultural work, but it's in conjunction with the core development. And when we're talking about in the previous episode about how, what is your feedback loop between users and developers, there's a very clear one right there. Yeah. The Blender case is also interesting because it seems like... and. Feel free to correct me if you know more about this. It seems like all of their funding kind of goes into a shared pot between these three separate organizations, right? 
So they do their um, kind of like subscription fundraising. They have their Blender Studio kind of membership where you can get access to things. And then they have their kind of corporate sponsorships. And it seems like all of that goes to fund all three of the organizations. So I don't know. I can't attest to the bookkeeping of the Blender Institute. And they, oh yeah, that, they... that feel free to correct me, was out into the ether. And... If anyone listening to this podcast has more correct information, please feel free to let us know. Yeah, there may be very specific ways in which that funding is disseminated, um, and I just don't know. But what we didn't talk about was their funding, the way that they get funding, which is really interesting. Which is, do you want to do you want to talk about that? The yeah, so we talked about it a little bit in part one of this series. Um, so they've got a couple different things. So they have the donations that uh, you can do. And then they have the kind of blender development thing, which is where you can donate as a member. And I think this is where most of the kind of corporate sponsorships Oh, the um, development happen. fund. Yeah, yeah the, the development fund. fund. Uh, comes from that. And then they have Blender Studio, which includes the Blender Cloud and also the access to training materials and assets and things like that. Right. And so the you can obviously so you can pay for training per my understanding mm-hmm. working with the Blender Studio, but it's the Blender Cloud thing, which is like resembles the kind of like supporter thing that we see in some of these other nonprofits, except there is it like a thing that people get out of it, which is, you know, A, you show up in the credits of these films, mm-hmm. which is exciting already. And B, you also are able to like download the assets behind all of these things. And they have a bunch more like training materials and everything, which are, per my memory, all free culture based anyway. But yeah. like it feels like you are donating and getting a thing out of it also. Yeah. And there's so much there that you can get out of it, too, that... Yeah, I even mean, if they're all getting, free culture, it's you get definitely getting something out of it. What's kind of interesting here is I'm very enthusiastic about this when it comes to Blender, where they have this kind of nonprofit side and then this more ambitious, like almost company-like side um, of things. But Mozilla also has this to some degree. They have the Mozilla Foundation and the Mozilla Corporation, and um, they're they're actually U.S. based, so they have a 501c3 and then a for-profit corporation. Sometimes Mozilla gets criticized for, like, it not really being clear what kind of the boundary is between some of those things. And I will just say that I think that the community and developer stuff tends to be better in the Blender space Mm -hmm. than it does in the Mozilla space. So it's it's not just the fact that they have those two separate things. It's that they have the governance in place that uh ties the community aspect to the development aspect that really works well for blender i'm i'm gonna put it this particular way it's definitely something you can see in blender that there is a lot of feedback from the community directly into the work that the blender all of those organizations foundation institution institute and studio are all doing like, there is, like, a very clear feedback cycle back in. A lot of Mozilla stuff, it's not Android, right, where they're just obscurely throwing the thing over the wall. But it doesn't have that same kind of cycle of community involvement in the way that I think we actually see there. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I would love to see Mozilla get better at. Yeah. Next, we want to talk about a couple of other interesting cases that don't necessarily fit into our types of organization structure. So first, Christine wanted to talk a little bit about Debian, because they have really interesting governance policies. 
Well, they are under what I believe is a umbrella organization called the Software in the Public Interest. But I think the main thing that's a Software in the Public Interest, uh, I could be wrong on this, handles is Debian. But Debian is, and I'm going to put this language out there, the most democratic version of free software we've ever seen. And by that, I do not mean anything as in terms of it having... You can in- interpret some ethical or moral things if you believe that's really important out of this. I don't believe they are necessarily more ethical or more moral than a lot of these other free software projects. I mean as in terms of they literally have democratic elections in a way that I have not seen any other free software project do. Mm-hmm. Like, it is a big deal, their membership, their dem- democratic process and everything. I think any project that has democratic things, you know, it's easy to be like, yeah, this is going to be like really the ideal thing. Well, you've participated in democratic elections it can also be a very contentious thing that you know feelings can be hurt and things like that i think in general it tends to go very fairly positively but i've definitely known people to get burnt out but what is interesting is that debian is like the big experiment of democracy in the free and open source software world Mm -hmm. and also because they have these election procedures they also have really good documentation for what the governance policies are Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is helpful if you're setting up another FOSS <laughs> governance structure. Hey, and also, wasn't the first guest uh, on our show ever uh, Stefano Zaccarelli? It was either that or uh, the Blender one. Potentially, the first one who was the uh, on the show previously was a Debian project leader at one point. Yeah. So, um, and I think we talked about that a bit in that episode. We did, yeah. The last type of organization we want to talk about is things that are kind of like orbiting in the FOSS world, but they're not necessarily fitting within like these structures based around projects or languages or uh, themes. And those are advocacy organizations. Right. So, for example, and and this can be more than advocacy. They might be stewarding something, right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, the EFF, I think, and Fight for the Future are primarily advocacy organizations. They are pushing forward, these are the policies we think are good, this is the way that we think technology should happen. The EFF does do some software development, but they're primarily an advocacy organization, even though when they're doing that, they're doing for very advocacy-oriented things. The FSF shifted to more advocacy. It used to be um, advocacy plus software development, and it's now mostly advocacy. Yeah. Um, Creative Commons is interesting because they're kind of an advocacy organization. They're really more of a licensed stewardship organization and like that does some amount of advocacy. I feel like the advocacy is baked in into the licensed stewardship, it's, though, for Creative Commons. It's baked in. Uh, caveat that I used to work through Creative Commons. <laughs> yes. So Creative Commons ended up moving, and I don't know where it's moved now, but when I was there, I think you know, the the license stuff was a big focus, you know, keeping up the technology to have the license stuff work. Um, also certain kinds of technical things to enable kind of this particular vision of, you know, the, the technical side of the licenses with RDF and stuff, which, you know, it's not as big of a deal anymore. There was a certain amount of free culture advocacy, but it wasn't as big as I had expected going into the organization. But what Creative Commons did really well is I think managed to have very positive messaging that got people very engaged. Like people are always excited to talk about, 
using Creative Commons licenses and stuff like that. I think they've always done very well at that. And Creative Commons, when I was there at least, did focus a lot on institutional stuff, as you said, like glam stuff and etc. Which is galleries, libraries, archives, and museums. Advocacy in the sense that they are advocating for these institutions to start using Creative Commons licensing. Right, right. So that all of, like, you know, the images for the museum are available in the commons. To a degree, I think we still need a free culture-based organization, is yeah. what I'm really trying to highlight. Like, there's the, the, the way that we have kind of the idea of free software as being, like, you know, something that people are, like, there's this idea of this kind of community development of it. I think there's not an organization kind of rallying... Uh, free culture as much as there could be so this is a maybe a call to action to somebody who really wants to take action in this type of space but it is something that free cult that creative commons does to some degree yeah and actually we talked about software freedom conservancy and increasingly they're doing this type of thing also with like the if you consider like the i mean certainly they write a lot as in terms of like advocacy stuff i feel like outreach is definitely advocacy so it's interesting because both the copyleft stuff Copyleft enforcement and outreachy are air quotes advocacy, but they also are very tangible things that they're also doing, right? Because mm-hmm. like outreachy is funding internships, and it's not just advocacy as in terms of pushing forward what kind of policy should exist. It's as in terms of like funding individuals and having a whole process for that, which is really interesting. And the copyleft stuff. Also, is not just advocacy. I mean, I think EFF does this also. It's also like particular legal work, mm-hmm. right? Which is pretty interesting. Yeah. And all three of those last organizations that we talked about, Creative Commons, EFF, and Software Freedom Conservancy, have lawyers that work on these things specifically. That's right. For legal advocacy. <laughs> That's right. So we, I think, took kind of a non-exhaustive tour. Of some of the... There are so many organizations and projects out there that it would be an entirely separate podcast just devoted to talking about all of them if we wanted to do an exhaustive list. Nonetheless, I think we've covered a lot of archetypes. Mm-hmm. So if you are considering either starting a free software or open source project or transitioning your existing project to a official organization. Hopefully these two episodes have uh, helped you kind of gather your thoughts on that. And you should remember a lot of these things, when we talked about these organizations in this episode, we're talking about these very, what seem fully filled out, fully structured organizations. Pretty much none of them started that way. No. So starting with the thing that's small, and growing it on an as-needed basis is okay. Yeah, definitely. And, and actually starting with that thing where you're just the one maintainer initially and you're growing it out, that's okay. Yeah. It's But as you grow... Maybe just some things to keep in mind. And things to consider based off of need and structure and where you want things to go. Yeah, and also what's already been done and, you know, so you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Thanks. Bye. Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christine Lemmerweber. 
The intro music is composed by Christine Lemmerweber, meaning myself, in Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC0 1.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at Octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us, podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We also have a chat room. Join our community on hash Foss and Crafts on irc.libera.chat. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash Foss and Crafts. That's it for this week. Until next time, stay free and stay crafty. Test, 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 test. Test, test. Okay, so as long as you don't sing into it. (laughs) Test, test, test. Like that? Yeah, that clips.